comes around. Hear the trumpets here. All right, guys. <clears throat> Hopefully everyone's just about back or on their way to back. Yeah, okay. So last week we opened up the door on discipline, biblical discipline. Everyone's favorite topic, right? Everyone's favorite topic of conversation. Uh, last week we learned that despite discipline and the sensitive nature of discipline in today's society, today's culture, um, that it's very well covered and explored throughout scripture. And, you know, I gave a bunch of um, verses for the record. It's it's covered way more than that as well, you know. I gave a bunch of verses of where Scripture speaks to discipline um, and how it's relevant for us today. It's something that God gives us personally, um, and it's Christ-reinforced rather than abolished when, when he came down. Um, and it's something he intends for us to use now as a church um, in his body. We talked briefly about the false teaching and false perception of discipline as the world would see it today, um, and refocused ourselves with, you know, the proper lens of, of seeing through seeing things through a godly perspective. So hopefully you guys were able to, you know, carry some of that initial um, conversation into cell groups. Um, I was able to hop around to most cell groups, um, and it sounds like some decent discussion. I'm blowing up here. Um, so yeah, remember that as people who follow God. Discipline isn't a suggestion for us. We don't get that um, luxury, I guess, if you can call it that. Um, but discipline is not passive, but it's active, and it's intentful, and it's... We're commanded to live a disciplined life personally and communally and for the benefit of community. Um, it's another way in, in how we express our investment uh, in Christ, Christ's body. <laughs> another way in how we hold ourselves accountable to that ruling narrative that's in our lives. Remember, we don't base things off of the F word, and I made a big stink about the F word last week. Um, but Christ is the ruling narrative in our lives, and so everything, including discipline, is through that. Oh, I get to hold a mic. All right. Yes. So this week we're going to explore the, the nature of discipline, the features and, and characteristics of, of the mechanism that God outlines for us uh, in Scripture. And we're going to do that by going more in-depth onto one of the, the passages I, I quoted from Scripture last week in, in Hebrews 12. Um, yeah, and we're going to see what we can extrapolate from some things from that, that discipline is necessary that discipline um, has proper motives, that discipline is, is played out with, with certain means, and um, the goal for us in biblical discipline and what we can expect as a result um, when we own this concept of discipline in our lives. So we're going to be going over Hebrews 12. Um, just some context for Hebrews 12. Um, Hebrews 11, so the chapter before, obviously, lays sort of the foundation or the background for Hebrews 12. It's where we get um, the, the hall of faith, if you've ever heard of that. Hebrews 11 is talking about all these people from the past um, and how their faith was a righteous faith. Um, and so we roll right into Hebrews 12 on the back of that, um, on how we should live as, 
as followers of Christ. Um, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 challenges us to take, take heart of the lessons that we learned from these people that came before us um, and, and push forward in our own walk with God. Um, and so he starts the chapter here in, in chapter 12 is therefore. So it's, it's a continuation of thought. Um, I encourage you to read um, chapter 11. We're not going to do that today. But it's a continuation of that thought from the people that came before us, and it's a word of an encouragement to start. So turn your Bibles to Hebrews 12 if you haven't already, <laughs> um, and we will get started. So Hebrews 12, starting at verse 1, probably go around verse 16 or so. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. So there's the word of encouragement, and this is the meat of where, we're, well, where we'll be talking about today. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us, so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. Work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterward when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance even though he begged with bitter tears. So we will stop there. I like this passage because it's, it, it kind of um, includes everything <laughs> that's great. It includes the work of Christ. It includes encouragement for us. It includes um, what well comes off the back of um, the people that came before us to add to that level of encouragement. It includes a call to us um, as a body to live um, holy and to bring people with us rather than to leave people behind. So there's a lot to really um, extrapolate from this chapter. Um, yeah, so it's good. So the first aspect that we'll address today in, in regards to discipline, um, as I said, is that discipline is necessary. 
Last week we talked about the fact that the world would have you think that discipline is um, an optional, a choice, um, an optional aspect of living and of, of raising children specifically. Um, some do it, some don't. Some don't know why they do it or don't have a proper context for it. You know, they say, I discipline my child so that they'll be a good person. Um, but as we know, that's an ever-changing um, standard, sort of that's shaped by, by culture, right? What does it mean to be a good person um, to someone that's not living for God um, and doesn't have the proper context in life that that sort of standard doesn't withhold or withstand um, the why game? I know I've talked about it a little bit in my cell group in the past, but it doesn't, it doesn't hold weight. When you ask someone that question of why, why is it important to be a good person, they don't really have um, a substantial answer, and it's not founded on anything um, sturdy, right? Um, why do you want to be a good person? Why does people's perception of you matter? Why do you want to be treated nice in return? Why do you want to contribute positively to this thing or this person or this group? You know, and you can, you can ask why, why, why until they, they eventually give up because they don't know why. It's not based on anything. It's based on the F word, the feeling, the, the culture. It's based on whatever ever-changing thing they have in their life. They, it, there's nothing that's holding it weight. And we talked about how discipline has been misunderstood as being unloving or, or flat-out cruel, right? But we know that Scripture makes it clear that the opposite is true. And so discipline is a necessary um, aspect or way in which God expresses his love for us, as it says here. And it's necessary in how we express our lo love for those that um, are part of that same family. Um, it's proof of our sonship. The scripture here says, the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. So to live a disciplined life and to maintain, maintain it, one second, to, uh, to maintain it, it's necessary. It's necessary in order for us to stay in that umbrella as God's children, to own that sonship. It keeps us in relationship with God. It keeps us close to him, and it keeps our focus on him, and it, it, it's a necessary outworking, as it says here, of his love for us and, it's an, and, his, and his familial structure. Um, the context of Hebrews is that, Hebrews 12 here, is that even in, in the beginning here, even in the trials or persecution we face or we may face, maybe we haven't even really gone through much of anything yet comparatively, um, but we're to treat it as if we're being trained. Um, he uses the analogy of, of, of running a race, right? The writer of Hebrew uses that analogy. So we're to treat it as if we're being trained into staying on the righteous path that, that we're, we're set on by Christ. He's the focal point for us. The way that we live and the burdens we have or we will have pale in comparison to what he went through and to the burden he had. Um, these things that, that we will endure or have endured are necessary, again, necessary to help shape and form our character. We did a, just a brief word study of 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 the Greek word discipline, right? And how it's mold, molding of your character. 
So it's a necessary outworking so that our character is molded to Christ. <clears throat> it's necessary in that it le lets us run with endurance that race, as, as the writer says in the beginning. We also have the means in which we understand and express discipline within our lives and within community and how that's important in understanding it. The writer of Hebrews quotes in the, in verse, what is it? Verse 5 here, verse 5 and 6, verse 5. Um, he's quoting Proverbs 3, and I threw that out there last week too. Um, Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline and don't be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those he loves just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. The writer uses two different, or the writer of Proverbs um, is using two different Hebrew words here to express discipline. So some Hebrew, I'll probably botch this too, but he uses the word yasar, probably not a hard pronunciation on the R, I'm guessing. <laughs> That's my American tongue, which is discipline, and which involves action specifically, yasar. It involves God's action. And then the other word that's used is yakha, which is correction in words. So Hebrews 12, 5 tells us to not take lightly God's actions and to not lose heart at his words of correction. So he sets up this model for, for boundaries in words and in actions uh, in in words of warning, sorry, and, of, and in consequence of action. Um, this is the parameter for living. This is what's um, your, yeah, this is the parameter for living. Don't be surprised when this happens because you decided to operate outside of that parameter, that boundary that you were given by God. This is the same sort of model, right, that we adopt for, for our kids in words and in actions. We give them we give them boundaries and, and standards to live by so that they're set up for success and following that path that they're supposed to. Um, here's what's okay, here's what's not okay, here's what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad. And none of this is based off of feeling for us. Sorry if I keep getting away from the mic. This is not what I'm used to. <laughs> um, but it's the standard that is presented by God um, and what he reveals in scripture that we base these words of, of warning and this consequence of action off of the yasar and the yaka. When you step outside of that, um, you can expect consequence. And we adopt the same model in raising kids and in treating each other, right? We have a standard for living in what God reveals to us in scripture and in who we know Christ to be. Um, and when we are operating outside of that, we're called to bring, bring attention to it so that that person be brought back to the path where they're supposed to be. This is, this is sort of anti what you see today, and I talked about it a little bit last week um, in discipline with, with parents today, right? They act irrationally or out of emotion or feeling, right? They, they act out of anger rather than out of a calm, pre-established set of boundaries for a kid. Um, and there's no, yeah, there's no consistency there. There's no consistent boundaries for, for children outside of a context for God, or it's not based on anything substantial, at least. Um, there's no debrief as to why something happened. I know one of the cell groups was talking about that. I was expressing my feelings on that as I grew up even. There's no debrief as to why discipline is happening. Without that mechanism, a person 
lives in, in chaos, right? They never know what's right and what's wrong, what's good and bad. They never know when consequences are going to come because it's all based off of feeling and it's based off of um, emotion. Um, yeah, so it's, there's no safe parameters to operate in. Um, I stumbled across this really funny clip that is too funny to not share, so I'm going to have Jacqueline pull it up for you real quick. Has anyone ever seen the movie Happy Texas from like 1999? It's a Steve Zahn movie. Well, you're welcome for this 46-second clip. This is to highlight what not to do <laughs> when, when disciplining. And this will segue, segue into our next top, our next point. So there's a good example of how to not discipline a kid. <laughs> yes, you're not to sneak into their house late at night, not say nothing, and kill them with the chainsaw. So he was using a different tactic, obviously, scaring the kid into never coming around, I'm guessing. But yeah, his, his, his level of discipline was, well, he was at a loss, I'm guessing, <laughs> and he didn't know what else to do, so he decided to threaten the kid's life, physical well-being, um, and that's not what we're called to do, clearly. Um, but this leads us good into our, into our motive for discipline and how we treat, treat it and understand it. So the motive of discipline, the why. So we already talked a little bit about the why for us personally, why discipline is important to understand personally and how it's an expression of God's love for us and how it's a way in which God owns us as his children, right? He brings us into his family because it means that he loves us. But it's also important to understand and reflect on the why in, the why in which we communicate discipline communally. So the interpersonal motive. So the interpersonal motive meaning the way in which we communicate something, right? The way in which we communicate how we correct another disciple of Christ. So when you ask that question, why am I bringing attention to this? Why am I wanting to bring someone back onto the right path, the righteous path? Your answer should never be because you want to hurt them. I mean, your answer should never be to shame or embarrass someone or because you don't want them to be around and so you're going you're gonna to bring attention to this thing that they're doing or you want to get one over on someone who rubs you the wrong way or to highlight their lack of maybe maturity versus yours, that's never what our motive for discipline should be. It should never be to seek, um, to hurt or seek revenge on someone. Um, but our motive should be because you truly love that person. So the motive for discipline is rooted in love. If we're using the analogy of family as we've been and as the writer of Hebrews does, 
um, with God as father and us as children, our motive for discipline in the body should be because we desperately want that person back in our family, right? They're doing things in a way, they're either living contrary to the standard that we're given in Christ, or they're just living in overt sin completely, and so they're, they're, not, they're not owning their role as, as sons um, of God. Um, so our motive in expressing that discipline is because you want them back. You want them back personally, but more importantly, you want them back because you want them back for God's family. They're, they're outside, they're lost, and so we want to win them back to their proper place in God's family. We were talking about it a little bit last night on the podcast. I was reminded of it, you know, I was going through things this morning, but so we were talking about last night um, this thing re- uh, regarding the trans community, right? And I won't get into details about that topic, but we were talking about how when we think about those people, we we need to be careful, and myself included, need to be careful not to make light of their circumstance and situation, not to make light of the fact that they are legitimately wrestling with something, right? We don't discredit the fact that they're wrestling with something, but we also make it clear that there is a standard. They were created to be a certain way by God, and they were created perfect, and so how we express our love for them needs to be done carefully and without, um, what do you call it, without, like, without lacking love, in short, I guess. Um, I wanted to say that a different way. Yeah, we don't, we don't think less of them, and it's, it's with anything, right? It's not just the trans community or the gay community. It's with people that don't understand the marriage covenant. It's with people that don't value humanity. It's with people that struggle with any number of things, any number of things, right? We treat them with love, and we don't devalue them as people, but we, we are called to them. We're called to them. Our mission is to them and to bringing them back into that familial structure that God um, gives us, and um, how we express that discipline needs to be done carefully and with tact, um, but yeah, as Josh said last night, not mincing, not mincing words about what is laid out before us, right? We don't compromise on things, but we do things in a way that expresses love and care for those people. Um, and this means sort of the opposite is true, too, for the record. If you don't, if your motive isn't rooted in love and in the, that expression of wanting them back, um, yeah, if, if there's a lack of discipline, it means that there's a lack of love. And so I quoted that study last week, if you guys remember, about the angry generation. But look at any number of, um, like, delinquent, delinquent um, youth who have articulated that a lack of discipline from their parents to them meant a lack of love. You know, parents that want to be the cool parents and let their kids do anything, well, there's a direct... There's a direct effect, as articulated by the kids themselves, that they don't want parents like that. They want structure. Um, They don't want freedom, what I call it last week, freedom of choice, exploration, freedom of exploration. Um, Parents today are too concerned with wanting to be their kid's BFF, 
right? And so they don't want to give discipline, give structure, give boundaries. Um, and so these people grow up without knowing what is healthy and what's laid out before us. Parents are ready to compromise so that their kids like them. It's very, that's a very slippery slope for parents, I know. Um, but discipline is not convenient, right? And so parents need to be careful not to use the what they, iPad, iPad technique, I think I called it on the podcast last night, the set it and forget it, right? It's a lot easier to go out with your kids to a restaurant or something and iPad, boom, and then the kid can just disconnect. It's a lot easier to do that. You don't have to talk about things with your kids. You don't have to worry about them getting into trouble. You don't have to do whatever. It's the iPad te technique, parenting, the set it and forget it. I cringe at that, for the record, when I see that in restaurants. It's almost like child abuse, or it's as good as child abuse, in my opinion. Like, it's so terrible. Um, but whether it's convenient or not, or whether it pains you emotionally to discipline your kid, or whether it's enjoyable or it's hard to take, or it takes too much time, I mean, if we understand that love is the proper motive for disciplining, then we can get over ourselves in that. We can get over the fact that it hurts them temporarily. Um, yeah, and we're willing to do, when we understand that proper motive of, of discipline rooted in love, then we're willing to do what's necessary for the long term, right? Christ certainly was. Um, the goal of discipline. The goal of discipline is simple. To teach obedience and submission to God in all things. Um, it says here in verse 9 of Hebrews 12, Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? So we're called to subject ourselves always to God first, not to man, not to culture, not to whatever changing thing there is. Always to God first. The whole passage here in Hebrews 12 shows that aspect of our relationship with God, that he is our authority and we are sub to submit to him in that and respect him from the heart. And we'll touch on that a little bit more later. And then finally, the result, the result of discipline, what you can expect. And so I just mentioned it a second ago. Discipline, godly discipline is short-term pain, and long-term gain. So how many different things um, feel good in the moment? I have a few things listed here. We think about childbirth and how terrible it is for mothers. Um, that, that moment, right, when they're delivering the child. Here we go, Wendy. You know, it sucks in the moment, right? Like, it's the worst pain. It's why did you do this to me? <laughs> it's, all, it's all the bad, funny things about childbirth. But the moment the baby is in the arms of the mother, it's like she couldn't care less about what she just went through. Short-term pain and long-term gain. We think about letting your kids try and fail at things, right? That's not enjoyable to watch happen when you let your kids try something, try something to see if they like it. When, they, when you let them try something to see how they can't accomplish it, you know? Any number of things like that, watching that happen is painful, like, but we're not called to be um, helicopter, helicopter parents, right? We're not called to hover over our kids and make all their choices, right, and protect them at all costs and put them in a bubble, bubble boy. Um, Short-term pain, long-term gain. We think about sacrificing our 
our personal wants, like sacrificing time and our resources and our energy for the benefit of relationship, right? And that's a huge one. Um, of course, I don't want to stay out till 3 a.m. when I have to wake up at 5.30, but for the benefit of relationship, we do these things. Short-term pain, long-term gain. We think about simple things like working out. Who likes working out in the moment? Unless you're crazy. Unless you're Madeline, apparently. She raised her hand. Um, you know, it hurts. It hurts in the moment. Your muscles are being broken down and built back up. We think about territory marking, when we have to lift rocks individually, one by one in the backyard, so that we can level the ground and pour more rocks. It sucks, but long-term gain, right? We do things with a, uh, um, a long-game mentality. And then we <laughs> think about eating your vegetables, kids. Like, it sucks, but it keeps you healthy. And so we do these things, short-term pain, long-term gain. The writer of Hebrews recognizes this when it comes to discipline. He says <coughs> in verse 10, 11 here, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful, but afterward there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. The, we <laughs> the, reason, the reason we don't like to correct our kids or anyone for that matter is because it's it's uncomfortable. It involves short-term pain. But we have to get over that once we understand godly discipline. Um, we're sympathetic to their feelings, right? But we don't let it hinder us. Um, we don't enjoy hurting them, um, even though we understand it's not really hurting them. It's for their benefit. Verse 11 of Hebrews says, um, no discipline. Not some or not most. It says, no discipline is pleasant but instead it's painful in the moment. But we're in a process when we're, when we're expressing discipline, when we're understanding it and how, it how it's working out in our lives. Um, and those who have been trained by it, as, as it says in the beginning here, um, those who are, understand that proper context can develop the endurance and those who live in it can produce a fruit of right living, of righteous living. The writer goes on to use the negative example of Esau in, in sort of contrasting short-term, long-term. Um, Esau was norn, known for what? Who wants to, to go? What was Esau known for? Right. Gave up his birthright. Esau was the guy who forsook, forsaked, forsook, forsook, sook, forsought, <laughs> forsook. Okay. Esau forsook eternal blessings that was already lined up for him for a meal in the moment, for a bowl of stew, for what was pleasurable in the moment. And this is consistent with what the world would try to, to perpetuate, right? If it feels good in the moment, do it. Why not? If it doesn't feel good, then don't do it. But we adopt a different mentality. This came up recently. Someone close to me is all I'll say expressed um, uh, expressed not wanting to come to church because they're too strict, right? First of all, um, I don't know, that person has a skewed version of things, but yes, like there's structure, there's discipline at church and within the body. You don't get to be the ruler and king of your own world. You don't get to do whatever you want. Not everything is fun all the time. We do have fun, and if you 
can understand things in a, in a proper context, in a mature context, then you'll understand that even things like taking rocks one by one when you're alongside your John Parkers of the world and your Isaiahs, then that can be fun too. Um, we, have a different, we have a different context for these things. So again, the word, the word is used in verse 11, trained. It's a continuous process and not a one and done, not a set it and forget it form of discipline that we're given. It's one that we should expect and welcome um, within, yeah, it's one that we should expect and welcome from God and express through the church. It says, work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. So the pursuit of peace and holiness, it's not optional for us. It's mandatory. And this is where discipline comes into play and becomes vitally important for us as, as followers. Holiness is not something we can set aside in order to pursue our own pleasures, right? That's not why Christ came and died for us, for the, so that we can pursue our own pleasures and have freedom and let grace abound, right? If you think that that's why um, Christ came, then you misunderstand Scripture and you misunderstand and, quite frankly, disrespect <laughs> the work of Christ. Um, but we all have a part to play in discipline um, and with keeping our feet, as it says, on the straight path. And so next week... We're going to go over, as I promised, Matthew 18, for example. We're going to go over 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Ephesians, and we're going to see how this played out in the church back in the day and how it's a model for us um, and how these different things, the motive and the means and the result, all worked together to um, bring people who are operating outside of righteous living, outside operating outside of the context of Christ, living in sin even, like how this kind of discipline with these different aspects of discipline played out and eventually brought these people back. So it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing when you understand the, the foundation and the context and the reason for it all. Christ commanded it in, in Matthew 18, we'll go over, and Paul reaffirms it in his letters to the church. And so... Yeah, it's something that we will look to to model how we understand it playing out for us even today and how it's still relevant. But for this week, I have some questions for you guys. How are you an active participant in discipline, giving or receiving? What has your experience been with the pain and gain aspect of discipline? Again, giving or receiving. Um, I think I asked this third question last week, but I don't know if I heard anyone necessarily talking about it, but... What are your motives in discipline, um, personally and interpersonally, how you understand it and how you express it for someone else? Are they pure, and are they from a place of love, or are there some hidden, nasty things in there? It's, it's easy to let that in, but we have to, you know, have our hearts guarded against that. How are you teaching submission to God in your lives and within your sphere of influence? As a legacy-minded person, how will you seek to implement a more godly discipline than what you received and where you came from? What do you see your role in that being um, in your families, in your family here in the church? And then when you go through things that are tough, when you bear burdens that are unique to you, 
are you viewing them as training, as discipline from God? Or are you just so overwhelmed by them and you wish you never had them? How are you receiving that, how are you receiving that inwardly and how are you expressing that outwardly for people to learn from you? Let's talk about these things this week.